0: On September 13th, 2016, 911 dispatch receives a call from a woman being held captive and pleading for help. 15 minutes later, she would be rescued, and a serial killer's crimes would soon enough be revealed. This is a case of Vicki Dana Doe and the victims of Sean Great. Happy Wednesday. This is Rachel. I am your host. Thank you so much for coming back to the Tides Find. I hope you have been well and I have been well. I have been very busy. I just want to take a moment to thank everyone for all the shares, the likes and the follows. Please continue to do so. We really appreciate all the shares and just spreading the word about the podcast and also definitely get in touch with me. Send me a message on any of the socials, send me an email. Let me know what you think about our cases here. We have a very small niche here in the true crime community, but it's a very important one. So that's why I'm here to get the word out about forensic genetic genealogy and the cases that it helps bring to closure. This week is going to be a bit different because, holy shitballs, we have a serial killer on our hands. And it's actually going to be a two-parter. This first part is not going to really focus too much on Vicky Dana Doe. We're going to learn more about her in the next episode. But instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus in on piece of shit Sean Great. He uh, was a womanizer, a charmer, also a loser, a deadbeat, um, very violent, very angry, and threatening and terrifying. And we're going to learn all about him in, this, in these next two episodes. So I don't want to release part two two weeks from now because that, that would just be rude. But I also want to keep us on track. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to release today, the first part. Next Wednesday, I'm going to release the second part, and we'll conclude this case. And then in order to keep ourselves on track for every other Wednesday by the calendar and by the episodes, our next new case is not going to be until November 10th. However, in between the 20th and the 10th, um, I thought maybe what we could do is we can plan for a special Um, Ask me anything type of episode. If you have any questions you want to ask me about myself, about the podcast, about forensic genealogy and in and of itself, about how I find cases, about anything you want to ask me about, comment on one of my feeds on the socials, um, send me an email through the website. Um, Definitely, you know, reach out to me and let me know what you think. If I get enough responses, then I will definitely put something together and probably release it, probably going to release it either the 27th or the 3rd, probably the 3rd. Um, just as a side note, I also have two weekend trips coming up, too. So um, it's really not that I don't want to produce more. It's just that I'm actually not even going to be around to be able to do so. All right. Um, for this first episode, for the first part of this um, case, we're going to rely heavily on two TV shows that I watched. One was Eva Lives Here for one of the women in Sean Great's life. And the other one was actually Dr. Phil episode Um, But it was a very interesting interview that he had with another one of the women in Sean Graith's life before things spiraled pretty much out of control, and he began killing on the regular. There's going to be a lot of sarcasm and a lot of disdain in this episode, but that's how Rachel rolls, and this guy really just, uh, he really, uh. all right, well, with that, let's get into it. Marion, Ohio is the county seat of Marion County, which, if you drop a pin like in the center of Ohio, it's just, it's like north and west by a county or two. Population in 2010 was just under 36,000 people. And for the notable people, aside from this asshole, I don't really recognize anyone that most of us would know, so I'm not going to bother mentioning it. And here we go. Sean Great was born to Teresa McFarlane and Terry Great on August 8th, 1976 in Marion, Ohio. They divorced in 1982, and Teresa retained custody of Sean and his older brother, Ronald. But just shy of his 18th birthday, his mother relinquished custody of Sean to his father in 1994. Now, dad and mom had continued to live in the same area in or near Marion all this time, so it wasn't really like Sean had to switch schools or anything, because he still had a full year, his senior year, to complete. But why did she do this? Well, based on his criminal record, which begins just before he graduates in 1995, I'm guessing mom couldn't handle his behavior because he was a woman-hating, girlfriend-beating monster who gets his first charges just a few months into his senior year of high school. It seems his pregnant girlfriend didn't like getting the shit kicked out of her anymore, and she decided to break up with him. Sean wasn't too pleased with this turn of events and assaulted her to the point where she finally decided to get police involved and make a formal complaint. His first child, hers, is born January of 96th. Later on in the fall of 1996, Great and one of his friends, a minor, unknown name, the two of them commit a felony burglary in town. And so he's picked up, he's convicted, and he spends about a year and a half of a four-year sentence in the Marion County Jail. By this time, it's the fall of 97, and he's still living close to home in Marion. But by the end of the next year, he's found himself another underage girlfriend. And like, come on, really, like, what does Matthew McConaughey say? I just get older, but they say the same age? Yeah, that's this guy. Unfortunately, in Great's case, he also fathers her child. This girlfriend is in her first semester of pregnancy. Yes, it's his. And after an assault, including strangulation, in February of 99, she calls the police. She finally has had enough as well. Because she also no longer wants to be with him, and she told him so. He spent a month in jail for it, and then broke into her house, harassing her and threatening her. This prompted an official order of protection request by her family. But when the baby was born, she felt bad that he wasn't able to see the baby, so she asked the court to lift the ban, which the judge did. And this is the beginning of Sean Great getting himself back into the lives of women after they say they don't want to be with him. When the baby was just a month old, Great assaulted both his ex-girlfriend and her sister with a kitchen knife. She and he sustained cuts and bruises in the process, but luckily for her, they're not severe. believe the worst of it was like a really deep cut to one of her thumbs now this is something that i don't get great is going to be charged for this and he's going to be convicted of a felony assault but the judge decides to put him on probation and instead revokes his early release for the burglary conviction from a few years back and instead now he's going to make him complete the full four-year term but why i guess we have two possible reasons to consider here first getting an early release from a prison sentence is going to come with parole in some form or another so getting charged with a domestic violence offense, you know, like we can also call it what this is, probably possibly an attempted murder, is going to get you in trouble, not just for the offense itself, but because you offended while you were already on parole. Because he was supposed to be on his best behavior at this time. But instead, he's going to visit his baby mama, and then he ends up attacking her and her sister with a kitchen knife. So clearly the parole needs to be revoked, and clearly we need to get his ass off the street again. But then... What about the charges for this particular actual domestic violence attack? He was charged. He was convicted. Why why did he only get probation for that? And I really can't figure it out. I don't know. I mean, do you have any idea? The only thing I can think of is maybe based on the charges, the judge knows he can't sentence him to any term longer than the burglary term that he's got left over. And maybe the judge just doesn't want him in jail, like stewing, thinking that bitch, she put me here. I'm going to get her back when I get out. That's the only thing I can think of because this is something actually that we're going to see later. Piece of shit. Great holds a grudge. Moving on. Great gets out of prison in January of 2003, goes back in November the same year for another violation. See, most of these assholes don't stop. And then he gets out again, this time for a long while in May of 2004. He's released on parole, but parole is only going to last until the summer of 2006. So he just has to be on his best behavior for two years. Or at least not get caught. During this time, he never holds any actual steady employment. Great is a woodworker in some capacity throughout his life. Uh, He likes to think around in like the shed or the garage. He likes to make signs that that he can sell for freelance. But this isn't going to be a consistent income for him, though. And the closest that we get to work, like the kind that's going to give you like possibly insurance or feed into your Social Security benefits later on, is a stint as a stock boy at a local grocery store. Instead, he figures he'll just beep up around town, schmooze his way into people's lives, and get them to give him handyman jobs. I found no businesses he was associated with outside of that supermarket. There's no trades aside from, you know, like I said, a little bit of woodworking here and there. No hourly work, no employment history. And like, what the fuck? How does he pay for expenses? Were his parents giving him money? Was, was he on social services? Possibly on social services at this point. But check this out. Later on, an interview with an apartment landlord at this apartment complex in Mansfield, the landlord says to the paper that this piece of shit was known to smooth talk the ladies in the complex. And he would actively pursue one female tenant, claim his love, suggest they move in together into her place, of course. And then when he was rejected, he would just move on to another woman in the same complex like a fucking deadbeat. So our first long-term relationship that piece of shit Sean Great is going to have is going to be with Christina Hildreth. Christina had been recently divorced and she had, I believe it was two children. She had, I know she had a boy. I believe she also had a girl and she had split from her husband and she was looking for a new start. And she and her kids decided to move closer to her brother and sister-in-law in around Marion. So they introduced her to their friend, Sean Great, just a few days after she gets to town. And this is going to be in April of 2005. Christina is going to be his first and only real long-term girlfriend as far as like relationships go over like two, three, four years. She tells us in the Evil Lives Here episode that he's handsome, he's charming, he's attentive, he's the best. And pretty soon, she is completely smitten with him. There's a few things about her boyfriend, though, that she hadn't experienced in prior relationships, and she did think it was a little odd, but she didn't think that they were huge, huge red flags. And a few months go by and Christina starts to realize how much she didn't really know about him. Like she says that they would talk a lot, they'd talk for hours even sometimes. But looking back, we didn't talk about anything important. And whenever she would ask about his past, he just he didn't want to talk about it. He said that he'd had a bad relationship with his family, so he wasn't close to either of his parents. He didn't see them that all, all that often. So why even bother trying to introduce her to them? So she never met his family. But one day, Great's mom shows up out of the blue at Christina's house, and she wants to talk to her about her son, Sean. She tells her, listen, my son has issues. Um, it dates back all the way to when he was a teenager, and he, we actually needed to get him help for his for his issues, whatever these were. And then my question is, was mom talking about the high school girlfriend that he had abused? Or was there something else going on with him during his high school years? Like something that wasn't documented by the court. Maybe something between her and and Sean or something between Sean and someone totally different outside the house. We don't know. But there was something going on where mom actually had to show up to a girlfriend's house. She felt the need to warn this girlfriend about her son that he's not all he's cracked up to be. There's a very dark side to him. But unfortunately, Christina decides not to heed this warning from Teresa and she stays with Sean Great. It's at this time in his life that Great is living in his father's house. And he tells Christina that his dad is looking to sell, but it needs fixing up. So dad is letting him stay there rent free and he's going to be the guy that's going to do the work. It's about a year and a half after he and Christina get together and she comes over to hang out with him. She comes, you know, she stops by to see her boyfriend and he's painting the wall of the kitchen. She thought this was kind of odd because he'd been doing all this stuff around the house and he had just painted the kitchen. So she says to him, what's going on? Why are you painting the kitchen again? You just did this room last week. And he tells her that his dad came by and didn't like the paint that they put up and told him to change the color. And then he asks her, well, you know what, since you're here, why don't you help me out? I need to clean this place up, the cabinet doors, the floors, the grout between the tiles, the corners of the walls. Yeah. So he's acting pretty weird. And he's very intense and he's in a bad mood. Um, But you know what? He's her boyfriend and she loves him. And just because he's in a bad mood, it doesn't mean he doesn't deserve some help with the housework, right? So Christina and Sean are working on the kitchen and when she gets to the grout in the floor in between the tiles, she runs into some trouble. First of all, the tile floor has like, it's stained. It's got like this thick, dark, reddish, brownish stain splattered here and there. It's on the cabinets. It's on the walls. And now she can't get these stains out of the grout themselves between the tiles. But it's very weird. She's like, what, was he making a red velvet cake or something? Too much food coloring? What? So she's scrubbing away. She doesn't know what it is. And it's just not coming out. So Christina asks him, what is this stuff? What's going on? And he tells her not to worry about it. Just clean it. And he essentially gives her the stink eye. All the while, he's just brooding, He's intense, he's quiet, he's focused, he's not interested in chit-chat during this all this kitchen work. So can we stop here for a second? Because clearly we are talking about blood here. And there's no pets in the house, just so you know. Something horrific happened in this kitchen recently. We don't know what. And Christina doesn't really know anything. She's just clueless. But he knows. And he knows she has no idea. But then he says. Since you're here, can you help me clean up? She's got no fucking clue that he's actually having her clean a goddamn crime scene, okay? This piece of shit then gets annoyed that she can't get a particular blood spot out of the grout. Oh, God. Balls. Balls. This is the aftermath of the murder of Vicky Dana Doe. So the cleaning finishes up, and they move on. They get on with their lives. And Christina's just thinking that her boyfriend can be moody sometimes. Months go by, and then he calls her up one day, and he tells her that he left a present for her on the dining room table. Oh, isn't that nice? So she's on the phone with him. She goes into the dining room. She checks out this present on the table, and it turns out it's a jewelry box. She opens it up, and it's an engagement ring. Oh, that's so sweet. He wants to marry her they're sitting there on the phone and cuz who knows where he is I, I don't he's not away on business he's not serving in the military overseas he's just somewhere in town not in front of her but proposing to her i guess okay but it's really only in theory because you see piece of shit Sean great boyfriend of the year tells Christina that they're probably never going to actually get married okay fuck you too dick so what is this a promise ring Christina lets it go she thinks it's a beautiful act of love He's extending to her a piece of jewelry that he wants her to wear and because he loves her, right? And he wants her to wear his ring. Okay. He tells her it's his mother's ring, and she gave it to him, and he wants Christina to have it. So she accepts it. And she promises to be his girl, I guess. And soon enough, she realizes, though, that it's too big. But they can get it size, so it's all good. But in the coming months, Christina is worrying over this ring because she had met Sean's mom that one time. And she was a small lady, and she knows that Sean's mom's finger would be too small for this ring. Plus, Teresa had told her to stay clear of her son for her own sake, not because Teresa didn't like her, but because she wanted to protect her from her son. So why would mom offer her engagement ring to him? Why would she want to help a girlfriend get closer to her son, the son who needed help and got into trouble when he was younger? So Christina starts thinking, this is definitely not what he's telling me it is. And finally, after wearing this ring for six months, Christina just actually, she just decides to up and confront Grace. She tells him, listen, this is not from your mother. I know it's not. Where did you get it? You got to tell me, Where where did this ring come from? And he argues with her and he continues to try to lie and she's holding, she's sticking tight to her guns and he finally admits to her that he got it in a burglary that he committed when he was younger. So at this point, she's pissed that he gave her a stolen ring and she stops wearing it. And it did tell the truth. It was stolen, but not from a burglary. This ring is a trophy from the murder of Vicky Dana Doe. Time passes. The relationship continues. They're still having a great time. She's still loving him. He's still nice and sincere. He has his moments and he's got his vague past, but she's still in love with him. And Christina and Sean decide to move in together. He can be send-offish, he can be private and shake off these questions, but overall, he does treat her well, he treats her kids well, and they like him a lot. And she's happy with him. So 2006 turns into 2007, and then one day, Christina goes to cook something, she goes to make dinner or something, and she can't find any knives in the kitchen. turns out that the kitchen knives are, like, gone. They're just gone. Suspicious much? Now, in a normal world, in a normal house... When do you go to fully chicken breast for dinner and then realize that all your knives have disappeared? Like, what the fuck? And okay, I don't want to give the impression here at all that I think missing butcher block knives are a reason to break up with someone. But Great's reaction to her asking about this is his eyebrows furrow. He tells her he doesn't know. She questions him more. He accuses her of calling him a liar. And then he shoves her so hard up against the couch that she tumbles over and she lands on the floor. Once she hits the floor, of course, piece of shit, great. Now this is the first physical assault for Christina. He's going to turn into Prince Charming. He starts apologizing. He's so sorry. He doesn't know his own strength, yada, yada, yada. Christina gets herself up. The argument fizzles out. And then she convinces herself that it really was a complete accident. He doesn't know his own strength. Maybe she lost her balance on her own. And they move on. Okay, dear listener. What do we think is up with the missing knives? Because, of course, one of these knives was going to be the weapon used to kill Vicky Dana Doe. Now, we don't have this in his confession documents. I have not seen them. But circumstantial evidence is good enough for me here, and I'm sure it's pretty good for you. The only other explanation I can offer is maybe there's another victim, a more recent victim that met the same fate that Vicky Dana Doe did. We may never know. Over the next few years, Great becomes increasingly more more morose. He's in a bad mood more often than he's not. He's getting paranoid, and he's telling her that he doesn't like going out into the world anymore. I mean, it's not like he has a job or anything. Like, he he doesn't even want to hang out with people. He doesn't want to socialize. He doesn't want to see family. He doesn't want people coming over by the house anymore. And he tells her. He tells Christina her own family can't even come to visit. It's just going to be him, her, and the kids. And he doesn't even want her hanging out with her friends outside the house now either. If she hangs out with friends after work, she's going to hear it from him when she gets home that night. Classic abusive behavior. You could see it coming a mile away, right? Eventually, Great takes to looking out the kitchen windows more than is reasonable. Now he's peering out the windows because he thinks the people are looking in. And he's starting to think that whoever they are is stalking him outside his window, not just during the day, but also while he's sleeping. He's randomly waking up in the middle of the night, and he's waking Christina up, this poor girl, and she tells him, listen, it's just the trees. It's the tree branches. We're on the second floor. The shadows outside are goddamn tree leaves, but he doesn't believe her. And so she has to ride these waves with him no matter what the day was like before, no matter how tired she is, no matter what grief he's already given her for the day, and she needs to be ready for it tomorrow. So I'm going to venture to say that this is the guilty conscience that comes with the murder Of Vicky, Dana, Joe. Because as far as we know, she was his first. But Christina is tired. She's tired, you know? And I don't know how you live through this, Christina. You no longer have friends. The only way you're allowed out of the house is to go to work or conduct essential business, like getting groceries. Sean gets pissed off if you take the curtains down just to clean them because the windows are now, now, because now your house is like a fishbowl. You can't rearrange the decor around the house without getting him pissed off and offended because you're touching his stuff. He started to hit you regularly at this point, but just enough so the kids don't catch on. And now he won't let you sleep because he thinks someone is about to break into the house and attack him in the middle of the night. You've become a prisoner in your own house, but how are you going to get out? So sorry. What about the kids? She tells us, and Eva lives here, that she thought that they never really understood the gravity of the situation with him. He and the kids had really gotten along really well for the majority of their relationship so far. And they were babies. They were like school age, anywhere I think between like 6 and 13, from my impression, during the time that great was in their lives. But then one day, he just doesn't want them around anymore. So she comes home and she sees that they've got bags packed. And he tells her that he's called up her sister and asked if she would take the kids for a while. He literally kicks them out of the house and Christina had no say. And yeah, she didn't even know that this plan was the plan until they had the bags packed. Now she tries to refuse, but of course he's taken to threatening as well. And he threatens to hurt them or to hurt her or someone else in her family. So what was she to do? Now I wonder like, how, how do we know when the line has been crossed in a relationship like this? Cause the first few years were great. It's just, after the, first, after the first year and a half, two years, things started to go south. When is it really time to actually end a relationship like this when you know what the person is capable of, when you know what they used to be like? And you might not have any idea why they're like this now, but at what point is it? Is it when he shoves you over the couch? Which is the one time, it never happened again, for a while at least. Is it when it starts happening regularly? Or is it when he doesn't explain dried red stuff on the kitchen floor? Or is it when he sends your kids away? And we're not in the year 1842 when women and children had absolutely no rights and men could do whatever they wanted. My gut reaction? I want to say that this was it, shipping the kids off. But we really can't because she's a victim. And the thought process of a victim in the thick of manipulation like this, it's not the same as the thought process of an outsider looking in. We know that. And that's what we are. So, we do need to be very careful, and we cannot judge Christina for the decisions that she made or the actions that she maybe didn't take at this time. She believed, truly believed, that she could not get out. And if she couldn't get out, at least maybe she could get her kids out. So, in the end, I do truly believe that this was a self sacrificing act for the sake of her children. Now that the kids are out of the house, she only goes out, she only leaves the house to go to work. He stays in the house all the time. So Greg can just regularly be Christina whenever the, whenever the fuck he feels like it because he's a sick fuck. And then he becomes infatuated with the injuries that he leaves on her. Not only would he take pictures of these injuries to admire for himself later on, like he would keep the camera by nearby on his phone on, or an actual camera, but if she was also just like me, maybe the right amount of sad, the right amount of upset because of her particular situation at this point in her life, and especially if she was upset enough to cry, he'd be able to film it. One night, Christina woke up in bed, and she's tied at her wrists and her ankles. She realizes that he's in the room with her, and she asks him what the hell's going on. And he tells her he wants to play a sex game. Excuse me? First of all, I'm sleeping. Secondly, this is not how normal people wake up their partners to get busy. She tells him she doesn't want to, and thankfully he does allow her to refuse him. He doesn't rape her. But he does tell her, all right, then, fine. I'll see you in the morning. And then he leaves her tied up, laying there for the rest of the night. So finally, 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 in 2010, the day comes and Christina is done. She's finally found the courage to end this horrific relationship. She's been going through this for the last five years and she tells him to get out. But Great doesn't like to be rejected, we know. So he decides instead he's gonna beat her. So he really starts laying into her. He's pummeling her. He's tossing her around the house. And she's down on the floor. And once she's on the floor, he starts dragging her into the bathroom. And Christina knows the bathroom is the farthest room from the street. And it's essentially the best room with soundproofing in the house to prevent anyone from outside hearing anything going on in there. And so she knows that she can't let him get her get her in there. She's literally afraid for her life at this point. She's cleaning to the floor. She's grabbing door jams. She's holding on to anything that she can to prevent him from dragging her in there. And she's pleading with him to stop. Somehow, by the grace of God, Christina is able to get him to let go of her. And she's able to get away from him and talk him down. In the process of this attack, though, she does sustain a severe hand injury. And they talk. He continues to calm down. And eventually, she's able to convince him to take her to the hospital to have her hand x-rayed and treated. And they're going to find multiple fractures here. While they're in the ER, Great and Christina are, of course, interviewed by the nursing staff and asked how this happened. How did you get hurt? You can't interview a possible domestic violence victim while their significant other is sitting right in front of them. What do you think she's going to say? So yeah, she tells them that she fell and then they're able to get him to leave the room because they know better. And she does admit to the staff that he'd been the one that hurt her. They'd suspected as much and they they told her that the police had been called and that they were on their way. But when the police do arrive, I don't know what the fuck happened here, but the police arrival is announced on the hospital intercrom. So Great knows they're on to him. So he takes off. Wonderful. This piece of shit, abuser and loser is now on the run. Christina decides to stay with her mom for the time being, because clearly she can't go home right now. And in the meantime, she gives police permission to search the house for her, for him. They're not going to find him there, but they do decide to search for him elsewhere But as it turns out, he's actually in the attic and there was an officer up there during the search, but they literally missed him by a few feet. A few days later, Christina needs to go back to the house. She needs to pick up some stuff, some of her personal items to get back to have at mom's house while she's staying there. And she gets inside, she walks through the house to collect her things, and then she gets this eerie feeling. Things have been messed around with since we went to the hospital a few days ago someone's been here as if they were living here wasn't just something that the police might have done when they were searching and then piece of shit great shows his face the whole time that she'd been there packing up he'd been hiding in the couch the fucking couch yeah the couch and he comes at her and he's pissed and he's yelling and she's yelling and he's not being the crap out of her this time but the neighbors are hearing it and they call the police God, this shit, this is this shit is what it's what movies are made of, I swear to God. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. This is literally what you don't want to happen, what she was afraid to happen. I don't know why she didn't have anybody with her. It's very weird. So now police are knocking on the door, but Great's got this hammer that in his hand, looking at her and telling her, I'm gonna you better fucking get him to leave, or I'm gonna kill you. And they know that she was attacked a few days ago. And they also know that this fuck nut is on the run. But now here they are, standing at the front door and they're asking her what's going on inside the house and to save her own life she's given a performance of a lifetime whatever she can say to prevent them from coming in and to get them to go away so why why don't they just see through her why don't they just come in anyway because unfortunately we got rules there's only so much police can do you tell an officer everything's fine there's no problems here you don't you're not actually being physically assaulted at the second they don't really know. They're not allowed to enter. They don't know that just behind that door is the man who put her in the hospital, the man that they're looking for. They don't know he's armed and that he's threatening her life just five feet away from that door. Oh, God. This, mm, this poor girl. After the officers leave, Christina and Great get back to the talking. And now he's, of course, just as paranoid as he was in the past, but now he's got good reason to be. And Christina, she needs to get herself out of the situation because she can't let him just fucking kill her there. She literally just got the cops away. She's got to be able to get herself out of the situation herself. So she is able to finally convince him of a plan. She says, listen, we'll leave separately. We'll meet up down the street, and then I will drive you somewhere so you can get someone else to get you out of town. You can get out of town. Just let me go. And he's hesitant at first because he's not sure if he can trust her. But she convinces him enough. And he can't come up with anything better, so finally he agrees. And once she gets out of the house, she, fuck no, she doesn't go through with the plan. She calls police and she tells him where he is. Thank God. <sighs> Great is apprehended, charged, and convicted of s- domestic assault, but only gets sentenced to six months in jail. Six months, people. Yeah, six months. During this stint in jail, Christina is able to get a protective order against him. But once again, this piece of shit doesn't give a shit. Apparently, the warden doesn't give a shit either, or at least the people that handle the mail, because Great is actually writing her letters, threatening to find her and fuck her up when he gets out. And she receives them in her mailbox. Like, how the fuck does this happen? Aren't you supposed to be censoring mail? Whoever that corrections officer was that allowed that letter to go out should have been fucking fired. After a month, they schedule a court hearing to consider possibly letting him out on early release. But Christina, she shows up like a badass. She's like, listen, you're not, you're out of your fucking mind. Look at what he's sending me. Look at this. So luckily they do they realize, oh fuck, shit. Are bad. And they just they deny him early release, thank God. And now he's gonna have to serve the full six months. But still, it's only six months. <sighs> And it's not all, though, because Christina is really, she's still trying to get her life back together now that he's gone. And she knows that he's going to get out in six months. And she knows she's got to be watching over her shoulder. Because prison escapes are not unheard of, right? And even so, even if he lasts to six months, she, he's going to be there. She has to be ready when he gets out. She has to prepare her and her children. During this time, she's having a chat outside with one of her neighbors one day. And the neighbor's friend shows up and they're chit-chatting too. And he he says, oh, you're Sean Great's ex-girlfriend. I was just in lockup with him. I met him. And he told me that he's counting the days until he gets out. And the first thing he's going to do when he gets out is to come find you. So she decides to flee. She's got to get the fuck away from here, right? Of course. You're not going to just sit there like a lame duck waiting for him to show back up. No house, no job, no circle of friends is worth it. You got to get the fuck out. So that's what she did. She changed her numbers. She got a new car. She found a new job. She's essentially on the run now, but she is a victim in all this. And it's so goddamn unfair. It's just so fucking unfair. And it's not clear if Christina's kids are back with her at this point, but as time does go on, she is creating this new life. And so I have to imagine that they're with her. Hopefully, hopefully they are. Two years go by and she gets a call from a friend that she has back in Marion. And this is sometime like in like 2012. And I tell her, listen, I just ran into Sean and he's looking for you. He's asking me where you moved to. I mean, of course, I didn't tell him, but I I just told him I would give you his number in case you wanted to get in touch. Could you fucking imagine this, dear listener? You literally have to move away from your home, your work, your family, your friends, because your ex-boyfriend might kill you when he gets out of jail. And two years later, you find out that the threat is still there. He's still holding a grudge. Unbelievable. Like, what do you say to that? How do you sleep at night? How do you function? (sighs) Christina, we wish you the best, girl. So now we have to move on to this monster's ex-wife because he's that good. He actually convinced the woman to not only date him and ignore his troubled past, but also marry him within four months of meeting him. We're going to talk about Amber Nicole Bowman. And I do believe we are in the same area of Ohio still, because from what I can tell, Great never lives outside of like a 75-mile radius. We've got Marion on the east and then Ashland to the west. That's as far as he really goes throughout his whole life, or at least until he gets locked up for the final time. So now it's been less than a year since his, uh, what do you call it, falling out with Christina, and he needs to get back to dating. Great's probably been schmoozing the ladies since he got released from jail, but nothing's really sticking like it's stuck with Christina for all that time. I mean, come on, he needs a woman to put a dinner on his plate and a roof over his head. So he's going to have to get on his best behavior at this point. And where is the best place to find a nice woman to manipulate into a long-term relationship? Church, of course. Sean Great was able to ingratiate himself into a local parish and needle his way into Amber Bowman's life. Amber tells us when they first met, he was quiet. He was not extroverted or outgoing at all. He was actually very mute. He was actually very quiet and shy. And he was sweet. He had these beautiful eyes. And whenever they would see each other at church, he was kind and warm and he complimented her. And soon enough, she decided to ask him out. And when he told her that he didn't drive because he'd had his license taken away when he was a teenager, yeah, he's like four, 35 right now, she offered to pick him up instead. Amber tells us the beginning of their relationship was a dream. He was attentive. He doted on her as much as he can without a car or a job, I guess. And he made her feel like a queen. A few months later, by November of 2011, they got pregnant and they were married. Yes, married by December. Amber says, quote, I didn't see any violent person at all. I didn't see any violent tendencies in him, unquote. In the beginning, at least. But then shortly after they got hitched, he started to change. He no longer wanted to go to church. He was easily annoyed. And soon enough, he was easily angered. He started yelling at her all the time and for really minor shit too. And he once again, just like Christina experienced, he didn't want either of them to socialize anymore. And he didn't even even want her going to church. A few months go by, and then one day, some random girl calls his cell phone. But Sean's not around, so Amber answers. And there's this woman on the phone asking him, asking for him. Amber's like, well, I'm his wife. Who are you? And the woman tells her, oh, um, I'm a friend. He told me he lives with his sister and she just had a baby. I didn't know he was married. I'm so sorry. So Amber is devastated because now she realizes that her husband's cheating on her. Not only is his personality shot to hell, but he's actually cheating on her at this point. So she confronts him and he denies it. And then he tells her that he's leaving. Turns out he's not meant for married life. But, you know, with all the monogamy and the socializing and church going and shit. So Amber, of course, is like, what is is happening in my life? How did this happen? I made this great guy. We fall madly in love. We get married. We're starting a family. Everything I ever wanted and prayed for. And now he's this completely different person than he used to be just a few months ago when we met. He's mad all the time. Now he's cheating on me. And now he's up and left me. What did I do? What did I do wrong? Why doesn't he love me anymore? How did I deserve this? But all we can say to Amber is it's not you, it's him. He's a dickwad. So she spends the next few months trying to get him to come home, but she's failing miserably. Thank God, though. And then finally, the baby is born in the summer of 2012, and they have a beautiful baby girl. It should be the beginning of the beautiful rest of Amber's life. She's a new mom. She supposedly was a new wife, but now she has no husband. Her husband is somehow just paying weekly rates over at the dive motel in town. And she finds out he's got prostitutes coming and going whenever he can scrap any money together. She'd reach out to him over this time, trying to convince him that their marriage could be saved. Because she wanted it to work. She didn't want to be a divorcee. She didn't want to be a single parent. She really hoped that one day he would just come back to her and be the old Sean Great that she knew. But all he ever said in return was, you got any money? This piece of shit legit only would talk to her if she was going to support him or bring the baby by so he could see the baby. And he did some work here and there, so he was able to have some money coming in. But if Amber would ask for any child support, he'd lose his temper and then just cut her off and not even talk to her. Within a few months of the baby's birth, Amber decided it's time I gotta let it go. I gotta file for a divorce. But she did still have to be in contact with him, though, right? Because. They share a child together at this point. And every once in a while, she would still ask him for child support. So she wasn't always giving him visitation times if he wasn't going to give her the support. So Great decided to start threatening her and the baby and her family if she didn't do what he asked. So now Amber is having to worry about her own safety and the safety of her child and her family. And it's one thing to hang on to the hope to reconcile with another person. But it's a completely other thing when that person that you want to reconcile with is starting to threaten you and your child. So, by the spring of next year, Amber was able to get a restraining order granted against him. They did meet up at some point in 2014, though. And this was going to be the closest that Amber ever came to being hurt, which is very lucky for her. She seems to have had it better than any of his other victims. She had been missing him. She'd missed the old Sean, the one that she fell in love with. And she offered to let him come by to see the baby, who was now actually four years old. And they had a nice visit for a while when he was over there at the house. And Amber and Sean ended up actually wrestling around. So, they're horsing around. And he's on his back, and she's over him, and she's got her hands on his arms. And then somehow that just triggers him. And then all of a sudden, he's flipping her over, and now she's on her back, and he's straddling her, and he has his hands around her neck. And she didn't, he didn't actually begin to choke her, but she knew right then and there that something bad was, was about to go down. His expression and the way he was holding her was just enough to scare the shit out of her. And she told him, listen, enough. We're not playing anymore. You need to get off me. And luckily he did. She tells us that she had never been frightened like that before, but even so, she didn't want to dwell on it as if she had just been, escaped being killed, but that is until she found out what he was really capable of. When the news broke about his arrest in 2016, Amber was at home, relaxing on the couch, and her mother called her to tell her he was just arrested for killing multiple women. And she was shocked. She had known that he had had anger problems and this troubled past that he would admit to every once in a while. But to this extent, multiple murders. No, she couldn't believe it at first. But then just like Christina, but then just like with Christina, it only took a few days for her to come around. And then the anger came. And then the fear, thinking, I could have been one of them. And that, dear listener, is where we're going to leave off for this this week. We will see each other next week and I will give you all the horrible, horrific, actual details of the actual killings. It's going to be pretty bad, but we're going to get through it and we're going to learn more about Vicky Dana Doe. In the meantime, you can find me on the socials. Send me an email through the website. That seems to be the favorite way to get in touch with me. And um, also don't forget, let me know what you'd like to see as a Patreon uh, gift when Patreon comes around, which hopefully will be in the next month or so. All right. I will see you next week. Bye.